Hello everyone, it's March 19th, 2019. This week, SLS is on the chopping block, or at least part of it is. It's the result of a slip in the schedule. And is that any surprise? Not really. What's being done in response, that is a bit surprising. So let's discuss and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 202 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Crap, what did we talk about? Yeah, we already bantered ourselves out before we started recording. The proper protocol is to kind of like save it for the show, as they say, <laughs> right? That's like a Hollywood term. But we don't ever stick to that. We just like to talk and then and then we begin the show. Right. Oh, you know what? I could talk about uh, RPG Night real quick. Oh, yeah. So um, we had a super fun RPG Night last time. And... Uh, I think we're going to stop playing Lasers and Feelings. I think we're going to change to the Rhesus system, which is really fun because what you do is you you have stats, but like nobody has the same stats. You have what are called cliches. So like, you know, you're, you could have a cliche that's barbarian and that lets you do things that barbarians would do. So the idea is you get 10 points and you get to distribute them amongst as many cliches as you want but the general guideline is to have three or four cliches and the more points that a cliche has when you roll against that cliche you get that number of dice and it seems really cool because it's really loose and you know it's inherently goofy um (laughs) but i want to keep living in this world that is like making fun of sci-fi tropes so um, the s- suggested list of cliches that the Risa system comes with doesn't have very much that's sci-fi oriented. So I was like, okay, well, anybody can make up uh, sci-fi cliches, but let me build a list that will get people started. You know, they can choose some stuff off of here and if they want to make up their own stuff. So I put together a list. I'm still working on it. That's all like sort of Scythe or sort of Star Trek, but not exactly. But uh, I've got things like uh, a little black book of experimental treatments. This is Hmm. like the medical ones I have. And then I've got uh, Grandma Felisa the Herbalist, which means that, you know, you learn from your Grandma Felisa, kind of like Beverly Crusher. I've got overactive antibodies. In driving, riding, and piloting the category, I've got uh, Titan's Turn and Culvert Starburst, which (laughs) denote uh, two different types of flying. Uh, And communications and protocol, which is like languages, jargon, courtly manners, and cultural quirks. Uh, One of them is owns a toga wheel. One of them is Grox Fizbin. One of them is Vic Fontaine. You know exactly the right big band band standard to sing. So... Um, well, see, I, think, I don't know if those are tropes, but they are specific references to yeah, Star Trek. So. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's not literal cliches. It's mm-hmm. These are characteristics that you have, and they call them cliches in the, in the system. One trope that comes to mind that I was just thinking would be very hard to do, if not impossible, but it's very common in sci-fi, or at least in shows like Star Trek, is that if one of the crew members turns out to not be who they say they are, but how do you do that? Because you would have to be playing one of those characters, right? So you have to sort of like be in on it or not know yourself you know how like when captain picard has actually been replaced by an alien like how do you do that but that's a very common sci-fi trope right well that's something that we actually did in in i think episode two um was i grabbed one of the characters and said hey guess what you're about to become possessed and then they started playing for me almost as an npc they started fighting the rest of the group so oh okay yeah so you can do that but that that wouldn't be a, a racist cliche because you wouldn't ever really roll using the characteristic I'm not who right. I think I am. 
Un- unless it was super goofy and like you had multiple personalities or something. As a non-Trekkie, the only thing I could think of just by general exposure to it is maybe like a red shirtedness, which is susceptibility <laughs> to death. <laughs> you know? Yeah, hang on. Let me let me put let me put red shirt in the combat category. I guess all the things that Ben just listed off, you had no idea what he was talking I, about. I could understand some of the words. I read Stranger in a Strange Land, so I know what grok means, but I don't I didn't know what the word after it meant. <laughs> F- Fizbin. Fizbin. Yeah, that that's kind of the point is nobody knows nobody knows what Fizbin is. It's a card game that Kirk made up to distract some Oh, players. okay. It's like Calvin Ball. Yeah, exactly. So if you grok Fizbin, you're good at distracting people. All right, banter over. Let's do this week in space. <laughs> okay, <Life>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and move on to this week in space Life history. So uh, who are our winners and what was that clue again? Yeah, so our winners were Ben Howard and Jason Friesen. Uh, they both guessed the correct event, but didn't tell me why I used the clue, or they incorrectly guessed the clue, and I've got a very specific reason that I think works. So the clue from last week for this week was to boldly go to a slightly different place. And this week in spaceflight history is the 23rd of March, 1965. It was the launch of Gemini 3. So on board, of course, were Gus Grissom and John Young. They named their capsule uh, Molly Brown, which was a reference to a musical called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Uh, Molly Brown was a socialite who survived uh, the Titanic sinking. Oh. Um, so MR4, Mercury Redstone 4, was flown by Gus Grissom. And if you remember, uh, his capsule, the Liberty Bell, sank before they could... Well, it right, took on right. a lot of water. It was halfway to sinking. So he decided that he wanted to name his Gemini capsule Molly Brown because she survived the Titanic. Uh, NASA Wikipedia says that NASA asked him to change the name and he said, okay, cool. I name it the Titanic. And Molly Brown promptly became the last ship that was allowed to be named by the astronauts on board. (laughs) Gemini three is also uh, the mission where the corned beef sandwich incident happened uh, I'm hoping everybody's familiar with that. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you called the corned beef sandwich incident like it was <laughs> like like it was that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. So Gemini 3's primary objective was to demonstrate the ability to change your orbit. And in fact, Gemini 3 was the first crewed mission uh, to do on-orbit maneuvers. And so... To boldly go to a slightly different place is referencing the oh. first time that people were already in space, but they went to a slightly different orbit. Uh, st- still on orbit, but, you know, a slightly different place. So they did three burns. The first one was a 15.5 meter per second burn. And all they were doing was changing um, the apoapsis and periapsis of their orbit. So they went from 161.2 by 224.2 kilometer orbit to an orbit of 158 by 169 kilometers. So that's, I mean, a a fairly drastic change, you know, in terms of this is the first thing we're going to do. And uh, I like comparing the periods here because it tells you the semi-major axis in a more intuitive way than just stating the semi-major axis. So they went from an 88.3 minute period to a 87.8 minute period. So that should help put this in, in context. Then they did a second maneuver where they changed their inclination by a whopping 0.02 0.02 degrees mm-hmm. and then um their final maneuver they lowered their perigee to 72 kilometers 
um, which is kind of cool because that would have deorbited them um, if their deorbit burn didn't work. So it's kind of cool to be able to yeah. start building in safety measures into tests that you're going to do anyway. It's very a uh, very space kind of thing to do. And then also uh, they wanted to demonstrate the fact that they were able to maneuver during reentry by changing the attitude of the ship. They can change the direction that their lift is pointing and they can more precisely hit a target. Unfortunately, it didn't work as well as they thought, and they ended up uh, landing much short of their landing ellipse. Hmm. Um, but they were able to demonstrate they could maneuver during reentry. Also, uh, another interesting thing that happened on this mission was they picked up a slight left yaw. And, uh, I mean, Gemini capsules... Uh, yawing uncontrollably. It's not great. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't the bad one, though. Um, this was just a water boiler venting. So I didn't realize this, but Gemini had water boilers uh, on board, and they were used to reject heat from the vehicle. Um, so there were radiators on board, but if they weren't performing 100%, they could also use these water boilers. So they had water on board that was potable and was used to cool systems, you know, move heat uh, around the vehicle. Um, and then what they could do is um, dump it into a water boiler and basically open the door and let it boil off into space, um, hmm. which would take a lot of thermal energy with it. And so one of their water boilers uh, had a little bit of a leak and it pushed them into a, a slight yaw that they weren't expecting, uh, but it wasn't as dangerous as it might have been. So it was a leak that was causing the yaw, but had it been intentionally like boiling off water, it would have vented it in such a way that they didn't have that yaw because I guess it was coming out of the right side of the capsule. Then, yeah, right? I, don't, I don't know if it was intended to be a non-propulsive vent, but yeah, I, I don't know. That's a good question. And there you go. That is This Week in Spaceflight History. So what's our clue for next week then? All right. Next week in 1986, the clue is, I guess that's a flyby. This puts me in mind of some sort of probe out in the solar system mm -hmm. and maybe doing a flyby. I don't know. Otherwise, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I got an idea for the class of thing that could be the answer. You know what I mean? Well, if anyone else out there thinks that they know, then just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. SLS missions transferred to commercial launchers. Now, I didn't write this particular title, so I'm not sure how accurate that is. I think it'd be more accurate to say that uh, Exploration Mission 1 might be transferred to a commercial launcher, but the rest of the SLS program, per Jim Bridenstine, is still going to be on SLS. So I think we're really just talking about the first mission, yeah, and that's yeah. it. Well, Mostly. I, I, wrote, I wrote this headline because I want to see Europa Clipper launch on a Falcon Heavy. I don't, I mean, it, it's going to go, it's going to be awesome, and, you know, whatever. It just I think it'd be kind of cool to see it launch on a Falcon Heavy. So this is kind of my <laughs> well, that would be cool. running away with me. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't be beyond reason. I mean, there's no reason yeah. why I think that couldn't happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is like a whole, I mean, this is like a whole can of worms here because I was reading about it and I'm trying to figure out what the plan is then. So it seems that the reason for this change being made comes down to Jim Bridenstine not wanting to see SLS slip any further or seeing Exploration Mission 1 slip past June of 2020. Right. And that's pretty much the only reason why. So, the, so you know, the thought process is, well, why not use a commercial launcher because that might be possible, although there are some changes that will have to be made from there because obviously the Orion capsule is not designed to launch on a 
Falcon Heavy or, you know, like Delta Four Heavy or anything like that. So this is just going to present more problems. So I'm kind of wondering if this is even going to happen. It seems kind of like a last-ditch effort to keep it on schedule. And even he said that it was a stopgap. So that's kind of his description. So let's just talk about what we have here. So the problem is the Orion capsule would also be lifting off with the European service module, but uh, that's too much mass for any launch vehicle to handle except for SLS. And the idea is to launch those two things separately, have them dock in orbit, and then push off to the moon. Mm-hmm. So does that seem crazy to anyone but me, or is that Seems like... pretty ambitious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a, I mean, not a major redesign of the entire thing, but definitely a major redesign of the interface between the mo- service module and the capsule. Like, that's... So this is something that they would want to do in lieu of just launching it on SLS. Maybe, I don't know how much later, because they haven't said that, but months or maybe a year later. I don't know. That that doesn't seem like a great idea. One thing we should point out is that the Exploration Mission 1, right, that one is actually uncrewed. So that's what makes this all possible in the Uh first place, because obviously you cannot launch people on a Falcon Heavy or a Delta IV because those are not human rated. So just this one mission, you could potentially do that. It sounds like the idea is just to kind of to try to save face about getting kind of, you know, EM1 going, at least get something on time related to Orion, because SLS is just not going to be. It's just going to keep slipping, evidently. And I don't think it was ever pointed out that they were considering Falcon Heavy or Delta Four Heavy. It's just that those are the most likely candidates. Mm-hmm. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, couldn't Falcon Heavy launch both the Orion capsule and service module? Or is it just like an integration problem? Yeah, yeah. So we actually had a misunderstanding here. So Sam in the chat is correcting us. He's quoting Space News. Basically, it, it's not that the that Orion and the service module are too heavy it's that you also need a second stage. And so the idea of docking vehicles in orbit would be Orion and its service module docking with a second stage, and that way you have enough Delta V to get to the moon. That's right, yeah. So they would have to dock with the second stage. So if you're talking about that kind of liftoff mass, is that something that a Falcon Heavy could put into orbit? I guess not. I don't know. I guess it depends on how much Delta V you need on orbit. But I would think that, yeah, that the... Falcon Heavy upper stage would be able to do it. Well, the way they're talking about it, though, right? I mean, I assume somebody has looked at this and the Delta IV Heavy just can't take both the Orion as well as a second stage. The Orion and the service module and the second stage. The Orion, the service module, the second stage, yeah. I do remember that the Orion plus the service module is about twice as heavy as a Dragon 2, and that's part of the problem there. I'm also kind of wondering just generally why this would be valuable to have, you know, Okay, we, I mean, I guess just to test Orion and the service module on time. Why, why to shuffle everything around? Because I thought the idea is to try to get yourself to test Orion and the SLS kind of together. That brings up another problem is that that was the whole idea. And if they put it on a commercial launch vehicle, that means that Exploration Mission 2, which is supposed to have a crew on board, might not be able to have that crew on board because mm. they have not yet launched the SLS you know, full stack. And so that's something that they have to do without people first. But now they're just kind of like kicking the can down the road. So you still have that problem. Right, right, right. Uh, so that just makes, yeah, it doesn't, it kind of doesn't solve anything really. It really surprises me that this is even on the table because I don't see how this really fixes any problems. It just kind of makes them worse. So pretty much you would have EM2 that would have to launch without people. Then they would do another one with a crew on board. And I guess from there they can pick back up where they left off. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe 
kind of, if, if I can make a prediction, we're going to have this, this idea of them flying uh, the Orion and service module and then the second stage separately docking and then heading out there as EM-1 is, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's yeah. just going to continue to just be, everything's going to slip. Yep. And yeah. Bridenstine kind of spitball on this sort of uh, really cool idea. Like, I mean, later today, I, as terrible as I am at docking in Kerbal, I'm going to try this when <laughs> I get home. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure the, the Kerbal diehards have been doing this for years now, mm -hmm. but I've never even considered this sort of approach to uh, uh, launching something. But yeah, it, it's, it seems like a really neat idea, but it just doesn't sound realistic to me to yeah. do this by 2020, which is next year. It is 2019 now, as I often forget yep. to write out my checks. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost exactly a year away. So in that span of time, you know, reintegrate it for a commercial launcher instead of, I guess, just slipping slightly, hopefully just slightly on SLS. Um, I don't see how that's a better idea. And there's no word on how much further this is being pushed back, the original EM-1 mission. I guess that's redundant to say EM-1 mission because that's Exploration Mission 1 mission. So just <laughs> EM-1. It's like salsa sauce. Yeah. I was going to say ATM machine. There's been a lot of things, like a few different things related to SLS that just popped up in the last week. Like one, uh, I think, what was there, the threat to withhold funding? I mean, I think there was a budget release that would not fund the uh, upper stage, the kind of next generation, uh, the Block 1B exploration upper mm -hmm. stage. That basically uh, was left out of a proposed budget, which from what I understand is a not very political, I'm not a very wonkish person, but that is basically, yeah, the president's budget request, which of course is never the final thing that becomes the final budget, but that seemed threatening to the SLS endeavor of it actually becoming this sort of future thing that would be doing more than just these couple of EM missions. Let's do some short and sweet. And what's our first one, Dennis, about a Sabre engine? Awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. <laughs> the Sabre rocket engine passes its preliminary design review. British aerospace manufacturer Reaction Engines has had its Sabre air-breathing rocket pass preliminary design review by ESA and the UK Space Agency, confirming the test version is ready for implementation. This hybrid engine has an air-breathing mode that can take it to Mach 5 and a rocket mode to get into orbit. Passing the review has greenlit the company to attempt to reach some testing milestones over the next 18 months towards a demonstration of the first Sabre engine. Very exciting stuff. Okay, next up, uh, Chang'e 4 mission enters its third lunar night. The Chang'e 4 lander and U-2-2 rover have powered down before entering the third lunar night. With temperatures reaching negative 190 degrees Celsius, both spacecraft close their solar panels and use radioisotope heater units to stay warm. The rover has reached its design lifetime of three months, but is still operational. With plans to continue roving and collecting science data once the fourth lunar day begins, begins on March 28th. And finally, Raptor has been spotted in Boca Chica. It's been an exciting week for folks keeping an eye on SpaceX's Spaceship Hopper. A Raptor engine was shipped to the site and installed in the hopper this week. Various plumbing has also been hooked up to the suborbital rocket, and it appears that a cryogenic liquid, likely nitrogen, has been pumped into the vehicle. This is presumably a leak test in preparation for actual tanking operations. Scheduled road closures suggest that the pad fire test will commence soon. 
I think I know what we'll be talking about next week. Hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. Hopefully. Hopefully. That is awesome. We have no uh, questions, comments, or corrections this week, so we're just going to move right on to upcoming launches. There's not much for that either, but we do have a couple things going on. So uh, we have a launch coming up, right, Dennis? And I think we had mentioned this last week, but it got pushed back. Yeah, that's right. So the uh, Vega rocket launching the Prisma satellite, which is a hyperspectral imaging mission of the Italian Space Agency. Uh, that was pushed back now to March 22nd at 015035 UTC in an instantaneous launch window. And so it'll be launching out of its dedicated ELV pad at Kourou. And then after that, we have the first of a series of three spacewalks. Um, so this is also happening on March 22nd. Coverage begins at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time on NASA TV. This is going to be McLean and Haig. Um, they're going to be working on the power system, I believe. I don't know exactly what they're doing. But uh, again, this is a series of three that's starting. And what's fun is that this is going to be the first spacewalks for all of these astronauts. Um, hmm. So yeah, it starts at 6.30 a.m., or the coverage does, but uh, the spacewalk is going to be seven hours, and they usually start a good time before the spacewalk actually begins. So all day on Friday, you can tune in and watch uh, Spacewalk, which is always fun. And then lastly, uh, we have it on good authority. <laughs> well, according to Sam in our chat room, we have possibly a launch on the 25th. That is the launch of the OS-M1 rocket, which is the One Space rocket. And One Space, if you don't remember, is a sort of a new space startup coming out of China, which is a weird thing for me to say, but that's totally what it is because I think of them as being, you know, very government oriented, but this is a private company. Mm -hmm. or as private as they come in China, that is, uh, I'm actually not sure how that works. But yeah, so this is um, a new company, and this is their maiden flight. Mm -hmm. Well, they're, they're first launch orbital vehicle. launch anyway. First orbital launch. This is launching the Lingchui-1B. So the Lingchui-1B is a satellite being developed by Zero-G Lab, and Zero-G Lab apparently is a Beijing-based satellite component supplier. So this is sort of like a new space Chinese rocket launching a Chinese-built satellite. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. That will be lifting off. Well, we don't know exactly when, but we think on the 25th. And when it does, it will be from some unknown pad in Jiuquan, China. So that's as much as we can say. All right. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So that's it. I think that was a pretty short episode we got this week, but I think next week will be longer. <laughs> With that, let's uh, deorbit. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.